0: I'm going to give myself one more stand. Good morning, church and guests. I'm Bob Walker. I am one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church. And we're starting a two-sermon series called The Wonderful Words of Life. And these two sermons are about the Word of God. Specifically, the first sermon today is about the sufficiency of the Word of God. And we're seeking to answer questions like, what does the Bible address? What is the nature of the Bible's authority? Is the Bible enough to do what it says it can do? The second sermon addresses where we turn for counsel. What instructions does God give in his word to his people as to where they should go for counsel? And I pray that in these sermons, God will guide us to know his word, and he will guide us to love his word and to trust his word. So let's pray together for that now. Heavenly Father, you are the good God. You are a God of love. You are a God of kindness. You are a God of truth and justice and mercy. And you have given us your word. We know your word is true because you only tell the truth. We know it is accurate because you are a God who knows everything. You are great and you have given us this word. I pray that we would treasure it. And that you would change our lives with it and through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who know me best know that it would far be it from me to ever digress into a story about my old flying days. I am going to make an exception this morning. I learned to fly helicopters in flight school. And one of the most important and the basic things, I mean, very basic things I learned was about something called aircraft attitude. An aircraft attitude is the orientation of an aircraft with respect to the horizon. So if you imagine a horizon line out in front of you, and you imagine how are you related to that line? Are you banked left? Are you banked right? Are you pitched up? Are you pitched down? You have to know your aircraft attitude. And as part of that training, I was taught to use an attitude indicator. And there should be a picture of that behind me. That's an instrument used to reference the aircraft's pitch and bank about an artificial horizon. So to fly, it's essential to know your attitude. And that's easy on a clear day. What do you do? You just look out the window. You see the horizon. But sometimes at night or in bad weather, it's very, very hard And if you're in a cloud, it's impossible. Depending on conditions, it's easy to slip into a situation where your sense of right side up is skewed. First thing, you might be flying and you don't have very good or proper visual cues. You can't see that horizon. It could be dark. You could be over the water. There's no light source. You can even be flying between cloud layers, and cloud layers aren't Always horizontal sometimes they're skewed and when you, you you don't have a horizon line and that's the only line you see you start to think that that's your horizon so you can experience erroneous visual cues that lead away from a true sense of your aircraft's attitude but your own body can work against you you have a vestibular system and I always point to my ears because that's where I was taught that most of this happens and the vestibular system functions to detect the position and movement of our head in space. So you have these little canals in your ears, and they're filled with fluid, and there's these kind of hairs or nerve endings. And as you turn your head, the fluid starts to move in those canals and against those nerve endings. And it gives you a sense that, yes, I'm turning. Yes, I'm, I'm face down or face up or I'm off to the left or right. And they're very important for keeping our balance, knowing which set way is right side up. Those of you who've suffered from vertigo where that system isn't working correctly know how devastating that can be. And, but you can get vestibular illusions also. And I realize Dr. Bob is explaining medical things again. <laughs> but please keep in mind this is how they're taught to pilots. Vestibular illusions occur under conditions in which a pilot is unable to see a clear horizontal reference. So I don't have my eyes telling me which way is right side up. And if I get into a situation where I'm leaning to the left, eventually that fluid in my ears stops moving. And I begin, my ears start to tell me that a bank to the left is right side up. That is not a good situation. So you can be in a situation where your senses are telling you you're right side up, your eyes and ears. But in reality, you're not and people have died by not noticing this problem or by responding incorrectly to this problem. So how do you survive it? First, you have your attitude indicator. You need to have something that truly shows you what is up and what is down. And second, you have to be able to see it. It has to be in front of you. In older cockpits like the ones I flew in, the attitude indicator was the largest instrument on your control panel, and it was always right in the middle. If you were looking down, you're trying to see outside, but you look down to your instrument panel, the first and biggest thing you would see would be that attitude indicator. It's directly in your line of sight. Third, you have to know how to interpret the data it's showing you. Please take a look at the second picture. If that top arrow representing true up and down is pointing off to the left... That's really up and down. That means I'm banked to the right. And if I'm in a right bank, I need to know, how, know that I'm in a right bank and know how to get back to straight and level flight. So fourth, if I can't see outside, I need to trust what that attitude indicator is telling me. My eyes might be telling me something different. My ears, my body might be telling me something different. But I have to trust that attitude indicator, it has to be authoritative. And that's not easy. But you have to trust it, you must. Part of flight training is learning to fly in instruments. Instruments like that attitude indicator without reference to anything outside your aircraft. So in training, my instructors taught me about attitude indicators. I sat in the classroom, they told me how they worked, how they were designed, how to interpret them. They taught me about the vestibular system and I learned how the attitude indicator worked. I learned common problems and how to respond to those problems. I learned techniques to accomplish missions with my aircraft when outside visual cues were inadequate, so I was taught. Then I went to fly, and I practiced everything I was taught, and I often messed up, so I was told many times by my instructors. But that instructor pilot would refer me back to the attitude indicator, and show me how the attitude indicator was telling me i was doing something wrong essentially it was rebuking me telling me i was in error and then that instructor pilot taught me to trust the attitude indicator to correct myself back to straight and level flight i could trust it and i was trained to interpret and use the data it was giving me to correct my errors and then my training continued and i had this discipline, training to continue to rely on that attitude indicator. And church, the word of God is like that. Paul teaches Timothy and us that God's word can be learned. It can give us wisdom. It will teach us. It will reprove us. It shows us our errors. And it will correct us. And then it continues to train us in righteousness so that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. In this sense, the Bible is our attitude indicator. And the purpose of this sermon is to lead us to possess it, to treasure it, to see it, to understand it, and to trust it, and to rely on it. And we're going to accomplish this by examining the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. So in this sermon, we'll start by examining the characteristics of scripture. If you're looking for the First organizational point, it's going to be the characteristics of Scripture. And we're going to focus on three. And those three will lead us a, to a look at Scripture's sufficiency. We're going to focus on Scripture's authority. So if you're looking for 1A, it would be Scripture's authority. Next, it would be Scripture's necessity. And then Scripture's clarity. And then, then the second, uh, second section... We'll examine 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 to see what this passage reveals about Scripture's sufficiency. And then after that, we'll examine what the Bible reveals about itself in Psalm 19 that will speak to Scripture's sufficiency. David wrote a song about the sufficiency of the Word of God, and we really should spend some time this morning looking at it. So again... The characteristics of Scripture, its authority, necessity, and clarity, and why these characteristics are vitally important to us. And then the sufficiency of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3. And that, this is the meat of the sermon in 2 Timothy 3. And then we'll look at sufficiency again in Psalm 19. How the attributes of God are expressed in His Word to us. So the characteristics of Scripture, the doctrines... The doctrine of Scripture sufficiency grows out of the Scripture's authority, necessity, and clarity. But before we look at these other characteristics, let's define what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture so we can examine how they relate together. So I'm going to start with Kevin DeYoung's definition, taken from his book, Taking God at His Word. It's back in our bookstall. I highly recommend it. He says, the scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Grudem, in his systematic theology, says, the sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. We say the Bible is sufficient. We're saying the Bible is enough. It's ample. It's adequate. There is an abundance of what is needed. It does not contain all knowledge. For instance, how to repair my car. But it does contain all that is necessary for someone to repair cars in a godly way. One more thing before we talk about Scripture's characteristics. You might be afraid that we're going to complete the study of the Bible's sufficiency, and I'm going to say something like, the Bible sufficient, so Christians should not use mental health medication. Or we should not avail ourselves of medical care, and I'm not going to be saying that at all. We should think about medications and health care in a godly way, and the Bible is sufficient for that. But I want you to be able to hear this sermon without worrying that we will come to a conclusion like those I had just said. The Bible teaches us that the Word of God possesses a few attributes that lead us to the sufficiency of Scripture. And the first attitude we're going to look at is the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible means that the Bible is our supreme standard for what we should believe and how we should behave because it comes from God who cannot lie. DeYoung describes it this way. The last word always goes to the word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, of human experience, or of the church councils to take precedence over scripture. Grudem says the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. we often talk about the inerrancy of scripture under the characteristic of authority. And so I just want to define that. Inerrancy of scripture means that the Bible is completely free from any error since it was given by God who always tells the truth. So we here at Covenant Life Church, in the very first article of our statement of faith, talk about God's word. And some of you might've even read it recently. Some of you were taught this recently in a foundations class. It says, the scriptures are the supreme authority of all life, practice, and doctrine. We at Covenant Life Church, the members of this church, we sign a covenant. We make promises to one another and how we are going to care for one another. And the first article in our church covenant says that we will submit to scripture as the final authority on all issues. We are a church committed to the authority of scripture. We say scripture is our authority, and then we seek to live that out in all areas of our life. And I'll tell you, this week, as I was thinking about that, and Charlie was reminding me that in many ways, this church excels in practicing the authority of the word of God. And and it just, it warms my heart, and it, uh, And I think for for all the pastors and all the members of this church, we know that we accept the Bible as God's authority. And as you're walking out today, you might see people in conversation. And those people in conversation, it will just be assumed between them that the Bible is the authority. If the Bible speaks on a subject, we are willing to believe it. If a pastor has to rebuke or correct a member, we're not doing that upon the authority of our own wisdom. We're doing that upon the authority of the word of God. And when we give rebuke or when a pastor receives rebuke, if it's, if it's spoken of in the word of God, we accept it. And so I do want to commend uh, Covenant Life Church in the many ways uh, that you practice this doctrine. It, it, I think it has been a help to us in our witness to the community. It's been a help to us as we seek to uh, love one another and it glorifies God and gives him the glory for the good work that he's doing in and among us. So I submit to the authority of what is true. I submit to the authority of what that attitude indicator is showing me, and then I can live. I can do what I'm called to do. The second characteristic of God's word I want to talk about is the necessity of God's word. General revelation speaks of God, and it is good, it is not enough to save us. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can see the grandeur of God, his creativity, uh, some scope of his greatness in creation. But it is not enough. We need the scriptures. We need God's word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. We need God's word. We cannot live holy lives without it. Without God's word, we are condemned. We need it to be saved. We need it to know how to live. It is impossible to live the Christian life without the Bible. And so I want to ask a question right here. Maybe even as we, uh, as we are listening to God's word and, 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 uh, and as you're hearing the rest of this sermon, just think about, do I always act like God's word is necessary? If you're in the middle of a conflict with somebody, are you thinking about what God's word says? Are you trusting in what God's word says? And are you acting upon it? Are you in a hard marriage? Are you trusting in God's word? Is it necessary to you? Are you in an impossible situation? You don't see a way out of it. Are you in a conflict with somebody? I'm saying trust God's word. It is necessary for God's people to trust God's word, to live in a way that pleases God, that is for his glory and it's for our good. So church believers, trust the Bible. It is necessary for you. It's also the Bible possesses the characteristic of clarity. The Holy Spirit makes the Bible understandable to all who read it, seeking to be submissive to what it says The saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in the scriptures and can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. We don't need someone else to tell us what the Bible means. The Bible can be understood. But we do know right understanding requires time and effort. The use of ordinary means, a willingness to obey, and it requires the help of the Holy Spirit. And we know We know our understanding will remain imperfect in this lifetime. But the Lord helps us, and we help each other. And so, as you're walking out today, I would hope and I expect if you listened, you'll hear people speaking the word to each other. A word that is understood, and we are helping each other understand it better. I mean, even in this worship service today, what are we doing We're reading the word, we're hearing the word, we're praying the word, we're singing the word, we're receiving the word, we're proclaiming the word. This worship service is about the worship of our God. And we are doing it in accordance with his word and in and through his holy word. So we help each other. We help each other in our worship service. We help each other in CLI classes. We help each other in personal conversations and when we gather in small groups and community groups because the Bible is clear and we help each other understand that clearness. An attitude indicator is capable of being understood. You can also willfully misunderstand it. You can misinterpret that data. And there are people who to justify their own desires and their own sin will willfully misunderstand the word of God. Try to make the word of God say something that it does not clearly say, and that should not be. And I would ask you, when are you tempted to doubt the clear teaching of scripture? Is it when you're in an argument and you really want to win and you think you can win? but you're not arguing in accordance with the word of God? Do you tend to rely on your own experience or on your own conscience? And I would ask, is your conscience fully submitted to the clear teaching of the Bible? As you fly through life, are you trusting your senses that may deceive you? We have this thing called the lean. You, you're in a bank. You think you're straight up. When you, when you roll back level, it just feels like you just rolled the other way. And so you want to move yourself Back into that leaning situation, and I kind of think of our ears, that vestibular system, a little bit like our conscience. It's helpful, it's good, it's a gift from God, but it needs to be slaved to what is true, what is the authority. So the Bible's the Bible's the Bible is clear. The Word of God is clear. So these are the characteristics of God's Word that lead us to the sufficiency of the Word. Is God's authority and the Bible being authoritative. The necessity of the word of God and the clarity of the word of God. And that brings us to sufficiency. So open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we heard Diane read starting in 14. And before I read it again, I just want to set, set this up with a little bit of the uh, context of 2 Timothy. After Paul's first imprisonment, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. In 2 Timothy, Paul's once again in a Roman prison, probably in Nero's persecutions. Just reading this letter, you can read that he was in a cold cell. He's in chains. He has no hope of deliverance. He was abandoned by nearly all those close to him for fear of persecution. He would be executed soon after writing this letter and in chapter 4, he writes that he knows this. So in this letter, Paul asked Timothy to visit him. Paul is passing the mantle of leadership to his younger disciple. So here's the flow of the letter. Paul exhorted Timothy to be faithful in his duties, to hold to sound doctrine, to avoid error, and accept persecution for the gospel, to put his confidence in Scripture and preach it relentlessly, and that's where we're at today. So again, Second Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse 14. "You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom. That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So just start again, you is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, however. And it's in contrast to verse 13. Just look up a verse. Evil men and imposters who proceed from bad to worse. Who are they? They're deceivers who are deceived themselves. How does God equip us to counter deception, even of ourselves? And that is what Paul is teaching Timothy here. That's what God is teaching us here. And so what does he tell him to do? He tells him to continue. He's commending Timothy for what he's already doing. He's telling, them, telling him to continue in that. Church, we are to continue in these things. Continue just means to remain, to abide, to don't depart from, to endure, you know, as in, in enduring suffering. Continue in the things that you were taught, just like in, in a flight school. Continue in the things you have learned And become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. As uh, Justin was teaching us as he prayed. Paul had previously taught Timothy sound doctrine. And this letter was not primarily meant to instruct Timothy in doctrine. Paul had already done that. Timothy learned sound doctrine and he was convinced. He firmly believed. He trusted that doctrine. He was assured of its truth. And so I, as your pastor... And telling you and echoing what Paul was teaching Timothy, what the Holy Spirit is teaching all of us. Learn sound doctrine. Learn sound doctrine as you come to worship together and we proclaim the Word of God. You have other opportunities in personal conversations, speak sound doctrine to one another. You have an opportunity before the worship service to go to our Covenant Life Institute classes where we teach sound doctrine. We teach it as we study through a book of the Bible. We teach it as we study uh, doctrine in a doctrine class. And in fact, the last session, we even taught a class on the doctrine of the word of God. We'll be teaching that class again. I would recommend it or any other class. We teach sound doctrine as we talk about how we are going to live out this Christian life. What does the Bible call us to do? Where does the power come from to, to actually walk out what God calls us to do? We don't find that in ourselves, but we do find, find it in the word of God and his spirit working in us. So church, learn sound doctrine. Take every opportunity. And we go to verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the sacred sacred writings, a common designation for the Jewish Bible. Timothy learned and became convinced of the truth. The truth was written in scripture and conveyed to him by faithful teachers. And that learning led to wisdom. What's wisdom? Just that useful knowledge that leads to a worthy or positive action. And that wisdom led to, it gave entrance to, something that starts... And something that continues all the way to the end. Wisdom provides an opening and an entrance to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Old Testament scripture pointed to Christ and revealed the need for faith in God's promises that lead people to acknowledge their sin and need for justification. We learned that some time ago in Galatians. Salvation is brought by the Holy Spirit using the word of God, using sacred writings, and even Old Testament believers were led to faith in the coming Messiah. Hebrews tells of many, including Abraham and Moses, who looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and gained approval through faith, not receiving what was promised back then, because God provided something better than Old Testament obedience to laws to make them and us perfect. We must remember God saves us instantaneously at the point of conversion. He had predestined us. He calls us. He justifies us. He brings us to repentance. He's the one who regenerated us to make that even possible. We're saved. But God does still more. He doesn't leave us like that. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And it's a process. We are not holy yet. We need the word of God because through it, God is showing us how to live out that salvation, how to make us holy. We are trained in righteousness through God's word, and we know he's going to complete it because the authoritative word of God from the God who cannot lie has said he will complete that in his people. He'll bring us fully into his presence without blemish in Christ Jesus, and that is the gospel. God takes the initiative in saving us. He sent his own son to live perfectly and then die, not for his sins, but for our sins who are imperfect. He died for our sins so that in him we are holy before God. And we just believe that. We trust that. And we trust in that only, and nothing of ourselves. So I call you. God's word is true. And he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners before him. He has sent his son. And in Christ, we can be made righteous before him. We have to trust that. We have to turn away from our sin. We repent of our sins. We turn away from us having the lordship of our lives. And we submit that to God. We submit to God in Christ Jesus. And we rely on that alone, and he saves us. And so if you're an unbeliever, that is my call to you. This is what God is speaking to you. His word that he has given is calling you to repent and believe. And I ask you, I beg you this morning to do that. And if you do, please come and tell any of our pastors or any of our members so we can pray with you and help you in that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, all scripture. This includes both the Old and New Testament. Both Paul and Peter have taught us that. It's inspired by God. It's divinely breathed. It's expirated. It's breathed out by God. You know, sometimes God dictated words to people, but most often he used the minds, the vocabularies, And the experience of human writers to breathe out his words. The words themselves are inspired. And then they are beneficial. They're profitable. They're helpful. They're advantageous for what? Teaching. These four things. The divine instruction of God's word teaches us. It's doctrine. It's the content of God's word. It's instruction. Be taught in scripture in God's word. It's profitable or beneficial for reproof. That's rebuke for wrong behavior or wrong belief. Scripture exposes sin. Reading God's word can be painful to us. Here's how uh, Hebrews chapter 4 states it in verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we must answer. When I was flying and I was doing something wrong and I was didn't have an accurate view of what right side up was, and I was slipping out of the sky, it was good to receive rebuke. Rebuke saves lives. Rebuke for wrong behavior or wrong belief is a good, good thing. Church, do not despise godly, biblical rebuke. Learn to trust the truth of God's word, and then to know that the truth of God's word is the best. It is the best for you. It is for God's glory, and it is for your good. Give rebu- rebuke in a godly way. Accept rebuke in a godly way. And then correction. Rebuke sin can be dealt with through confession and repentance. Repentance. We can correct what we are doing wrong. The Bible helps us to correct ways that we are failing and ways that we are sinning. This uh, word speaks of writing a fallen object. You have a, a vase or a bottle, it starts to fall or it has fallen. You can set it right side up. It is corrected. You've made it right side up again. The Bible does that for us. It's our attitude indicator we trust it, it is able to correct me. I'm able to get back to safe, straight, and level f- flight. And then it is beneficial for training and righteousness. Think of disciplined training and righteousness, the way we should train a child. Not just th- through rebuke and correction, although those, those things have its place. But the steady teaching and practice of God's word, the same way you learn to fly an airplane, probably the same way you learn to drive a car, you're taught and then you practice. When you do something wrong, you're told, you get help correcting it, and then you continue to practice some more. God changes his people through discipline, training, and righteousness through his word. Then we get to verse 17. So that the man or woman of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good word, every good work. So that, here's the purpose of this teaching that that, uh, Paul has given Timothy, that the Holy Spirit is giving us the man of God, God's people, specifically God's uh, preacher, and then by extension, all of us. And it makes us adequate. We're capable of doing everything that we're called to do, we're perfect, we're complete. And we are equipped, we're thoroughly equipped, we're accomplished, we're thoroughly furnished. We've been rendered complete for what? For every good work. Every good work that we are called to do, we are rendered adequate and equipped to do that. We're enabled to meet all the demands of godly ministry and righteous living in the word of God. So Paul emphasizes the sufficiency of Scripture in this short verse in three ways. Just a reminder, the Scriptures are able, they're adequate. Uh, Scripture is able. In verse 15, it makes us adequate, meaning the Scriptures are capable, they're fitted, they're complete, they're proficient, able to meet all demands. We never need be inadequate so long as we have the Bible. If we feel inadequate, the Scriptures fully equip us. And that's speaking of like a ship preparing for a voyage. Mere men cannot foresee every possibility. You prepare your ship. You prepare your route. You put all your equipment on board. But we can't foresee everything. And that's why shipwrecks exist. But God can. And in his word, he fully equips his people. There is nothing lacking. The God who is all-knowing and all-powerful has equipped his word. And he has equipped us through his word. It is Perfect. And then the scriptures equip us for every good task. They don't contain everything. They don't contain how to fly an airplane, how to perform a, an operation, but they are entirely adequate as a textbook for living and for changing our living to conform to God's requirements. So, in summary, why is God's word sufficient? Why is scripture sufficient? It's holy from verse 15. It's sacred. It's set apart from any other writing. It's unique. It is able. It's the Holy Spirit's tool for working in the minds and hearts of men and women to make them like Christ. Verse 16, it's inspired by God. It is God's word breathed out by him. It's profitable or useful, and it thoroughly equips the man of God for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. And so I want to, as we get close to closing... I want to turn over to Psalm 19, and we're going to think about the sufficiency of Scripture as it's expressed in this psalm. And I just want to say, as you're turning to Psalm 19, that a a theologian I've come to appreciate more the last few years, John Murray, has said, There's no situation in which we, as the people of God, are placed... No demand that arises for which Scripture, as the deposit of the manifold wisdom of God, is not adequate or sufficient. Our problem is not that we do not have all we need in the Bible, but that we do not have enough of the Bible in us. As you're uh, landing on Psalm 19, I just want to read to you how the Apostle Peter applies the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 seeing that his divine power and we know that through the rest of God's word and even from what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 seeing that his divine power through his word has granted to us everything everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that, the purpose, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The scriptures are are sufficient, and by them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Here's what Psalm 19 says, even just briefly. A song about the sufficiency of scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It's perfect, it's whole, it's complete, it's sufficient, lacking nothing. And so I would tell you, church, the law of the Lord is perfect. Don't focus on false horizons. This world, it will assault us with false horizons. We're not to focus on those. We are to focus on God's word, his sufficient word, his perfect word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do any of you lack wisdom? I'm glad I'm seeing a lot of head nods. I lack wisdom. We all lack wisdom, but the testimony of the Lord is sure. And when we are acting as simpletons, the word of God can help make us wise, trustworthy, reliable. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do you want your heart to rejoice? Trust in the precepts of the Lord. They are always correct. They are authoritative. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word of God is pure from any impurity. Is there any other source of wisdom that you would turn to that could say that? The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Do you need insight into yourself? Do you need insight into your sin? Do you need insight into a conflict that you are having? The judgments of the Lord, they're true, and they're righteous altogether. You may trust them. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. We know what the Bible says about riches and money on this earth, but it also says a lot about laying up treasures in heaven. And if you want true spiritual prosperity... You need to find the, the source of that in Scripture because Scripture is more desirable than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We can find sweetness in the Lord, in his word. Is there any bitterness at all in your life right now? And we're on this earth. There's, there's pain, there's weakness, there's sin in our hearts and we struggle and we fight. We have disappointments in work, disappointments in relationships, just disappointment. We see death. We see sickness. We feel it. You want sweetness? It can be found in his word. There is sweetness to be had in God's word. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. There's trouble out there. We know it. And we are warned about that trouble and how to respond to that trouble in Scripture. There's protection in Scripture. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults? Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. The Word of God preserves us. We're tempted. We are tempted to sin. We are tempted to get those lanes to to follow a false horizon. The word of God protects us from that. It protects us from ourselves. It preserves us. Let them not rule over me, then I'll be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Where do you go for counsel? Do you go to the words of... Do you go to the word that was described in Psalm 19 or do you go elsewhere? Where do you go for teaching? What podcast, what book, what online speaker, what person do you listen to? Are they speaking the word of God? Are you giving counsel and the counsel that you give, is it in accordance with the word of God? Is the word of God the basis for how we live our lives? And those are questions we have to ask ourselves. And those are questions that we have to answer and that we have to encourage each other. And I look out and I see just row after row of people who seek to do this. And I know we do it imperfectly, but it it just warms my heart just to see just to be able to remember conversations I've had with many of you or conversations I've heard where you've been sharing the word of God with each other. And I will tell you that word of God has made a difference in people's lives. I mean, I get to counsel a lot of people and there are just numerous times where I do a lot of talking and I don't see a lot of effect, but that person comes back to me after a week and they're able to share something that that the Holy Spirit has applied to them, to their heart, from the word directly, and it's made a difference because the word of God is living and active and it's powerful and it's authoritative and it's clear and it's necessary and it's adequate and it's adequate for teaching us and for correcting us, for rebuking us and for training us in righteousness. You, church, we can rely on the word of God and please do not neglect the word of God.